Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Well, if you uh, remember, Matt ended his series on, on the covenants. He looked at the major covenants of the Bible over the last five weeks, and then uh, he said he was going on sabbatical, and so he has gone, and uh, he'll be rejoining us in December. and. Uh, he showed pictures of the guest speakers that we were going to have, and if you think back, you never saw my picture there. <laughs> well, if you've watched a, a, a baseball game, they don't show who's warming up in the bullpen until they start walking on the field. Our, our guest speaker for today uh, wasn't able to come, and so Matt had, had told me I needed to be ready in the bullpen, warmed up, uh, with a sermon in, in my pocket. 
uh, that even at the last minute notice that I would step in. Well, God didn't give me last minute notice, but uh, I was going to go to Dallas to a, a, a one of three day conference that pastors had there. And uh, on Wednesday and Tuesday, I just felt this very strong impression of the Lord that no, don't go. We're going to rewrite your sermon tomorrow morning. And so Wednesday, I got up and just stayed at home and did that. And then Wednesday afternoon at 2 o'clock, met with the worship team, only to find out that I was coming out of the bullpen for the week. So uh, it actually, uh, when, I, when I was working on this rewrite Wednesday morning, uh, it, it was so, my mind was so full of what Matt had been sharing the last five weeks, I, I, I said something as foolish as this to the Lord. It would be better if this sermon were closer to the end of his series. Here I am today. Uh, in, that, in that series on covenants, Matt showed us this big picture of what God was about doing in the world and, and looking through the Bible at the major covenants and, and continually these Old Testament covenants are pointing to this New Testament covenant. Uh, in, uh, we kept, as man, we kept seeing in that covenant series that we kept missing this opportunity, blowing this opportunity to come into relationship with God. And yet he just kept initiating. And finally, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus breaks out of heaven and comes to us and establishes a new covenant, a covenant of grace as if he's taking Paul's word that Paul would write later and stretching out his arms and saying, look, your sins are forgiven out of grace, not out of self-effort. So live that way. Live that way. The whole second part of the Bible is called the New Testament. The first four books of that are the Gospels. They are a testimony that Jesus is God and he is qualified to establish this new covenant with us. And it's an unconditional covenant. He, it's, it's unilateral. He's doing this toward us, and we just have to respond to it. And, and when we respond to it, it's supposed to change us. It's supposed to change our view of life and how we live. And we're supposed to live out this grace covenant. So today we're going to look at a New Testament book, uh, particularly the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at Paul's prayer for this church in Colossae. And uh, in that, I think we're going to be able to see some things of how Paul views them, first of all, and what he sees in them as part of that, and then how he prays for them. And as we look at his prayer for them, we're going to get a clue of how we're supposed to live how we're supposed to live this out. See, because the rest of the New Testament, after those gospels and Jesus establishing uh, this new covenant and the new church, he's gonna tell us how this, he's gonna unpack this covenant for us, but not just so we have knowledge of it and greater understanding of it, but so we know how to live it and how we're supposed to live it out. So that's what we're gonna look for as we look at how Paul prays for the Colossians. So first, let's look at uh, the introduction to this book, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren of, in Christ who are in Colossae, 
grace to you and peace in our, uh, from our God and Father. Very typical way for Paul to start out his letter, of introducing himself and, and giving this kind of, of greeting to them. And it says, we give thanks to God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has, do, has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow ser, bond servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf and has also informed us of your love for the saints for, or for, for in the Spirit. So Paul is talking to them in familial kinds of terms. He talks about Timothy, a brother, and them being brother, brethren, and God being our father. He's commending them for how, they're, how they've embraced this gospel of grace in their life, and it's showing evidence uh, out in how they live. And the evidence he's referring to is faith, hope, and love. Sound familiar? Heard it at a wedding maybe? 1 Corinthians 13, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Paul's saying, I can see in your life expressions of faith in Jesus, hope in what he's provided for you in the future, and your love for one another as evidence that the gospel of, of, of grace has taken root in your life, okay? That you're living it out. That coming into this relationship with God is changing you. See, he says there in that first part uh, that they heard the word of truth and understood the grace of God in that truth, in truth. They understood they were beneficiaries of grace, that Jesus had forgiven their sins, and through him, they were brought into a personal relationship with God. Now, Paul is entering into a relationship with them because they are fellow heirs in the, in the family of God, okay? He, didn't, he hadn't gone to this church. He didn't establish it. One of his disciples did. But he's coming into relationship with them because of their common faith in Jesus. So one of the first dividends of this, this covenant of grace that we have is a relationship. It brings us into a right relationship with the living God. And because of that relationship we have with him, we have a relationship with one another as brothers and sisters. We're, in a, fa we're a family sharing the covenant of grace, this, uh, this new covenant with God. It doesn't matter when you got to the show, when you showed up into the family, if you got there early or late. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you came into the family with, okay? Uh, how much Bible knowledge you know or how much understanding you have of God, you had enough faith and trust in what you knew, what you heard in the gospel of truth, in the covenant of grace to come into relationship. And now we can have a relationship with one another as a result of that. This relationship is supposed to bring a reorientation of how we live our life. It, we are to live life with a new view now because of this covenant relationship. 
And Paul is now going to pray for the, these believers in Colossae to live their life in a, in a particular, with a particular view of life. And it should become how they filter their thoughts and how they see things fitting in, and it should characterize how they live. Now, let's look at what he prays in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The main core of this prayer is this statement that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would get a, a grasp on what he is doing. The word that he uses here is, is epinosis. It's the fullness of knowledge. It's not just knowing how to behave or how to act, okay? It's not about social etiquette. What are you supposed to do now that you're a believer? It's a fullness of understanding what God is doing in the world and what he has done, and particularly the implications of this grace covenant so that it changes how you live. It becomes the thing in which you live your life in the context of. It's this bigger story, this bigger picture, and seeing that I now, because I'm a recipient of his grace, have a part of his story that he's been writing throughout the generations. The reason I wanted that video shown, it was what it ended with, I want to begin there, is because in those three minutes, it gives us this picture of all the prophets of the Old Testament pointing to a true and better one, Jesus. The covenants of the Old Testament pointing to a better one, the grace covenant. And that you and I get to live in this age where we have been offered this grace relationship with God. And it's supposed to help us to come to the point where we go, oh, I get it now. That's what God's doing, and I get to be a part of it. We need to understand the, this grace and let it grip us so that we live our lives in the context of that story. Our lives have meaning and purpose best in the context of God's story. Some people, particularly in this evangelical age, are... Uh, can look at, at um, putting faith, their faith in Christ like they swallowed a coin. They can remember when they swallowed it. They can remember why they chose to swallow it. They can remember what they were like before they swallowed it and what they're like after they swallowed it. They know it's a part of their life now, right? But life doesn't seem to change that much. They might go to church a little bit more, and they might go to Bible study, and they might try to learn more and those kinds of things, but they're still struggling with the same kinds of stuff they did before they swallowed that coin. That's not how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be more like swallowing a pill, an Advil maybe, or an antibiotic. Now, I still think it's a mystery of how this stuff works, okay? I take it into my body, and I know someone can explain medically and technically how it works, but I take it in my body, it goes in my stomach, and it begins to break apart, and it gets into my bloodstream. It permeates my body. And that little pill, the effect of it, it finds the ache in my back or the ache in my head, right? 
or as an antibiotic, it finds that infection in my kidney and it begins to attack the bad things that are going on there. Because it didn't just say, I'm going to go to the kidney today, because I think that's my guess. It goes all through me. And once it permeates through me, it begins to affect those things that are out of sync, right? That's what having Jesus into our life is supposed to do. That's what Paul is saying is, they look, have this fullness of knowledge about the full picture of what God's doing in the world. It's not that you need to know everything, but understand that he has a bigger picture. Your faith is in him who has the bigger picture, and you get to live your life out through that and be a part of that story. And so Paul wants us to live that way, or wants these believers particularly to, to live that way, to be grasped, or better yet, to be grasped by it uh, and live it out. So that their daily life now flows out of this permeating knowledge of who God is and what he's done and what it means to be in a covenant of grace within him, with him. I'm a child of God now. That's a crazy thought, a crazy claim for me to make. The God who created the heavens and the earth and sustains all life and gives all life has a relationship with me. And he, the Bible says he thinks about me so often in the course of the day, I can't keep up with a count of that many times he thinks about me. He's that involved in me and I'm supposed to be engaged with him. I mean, I am literally just a speck of dust. I'm a grain of sand at best of the billions of sand of the vision that God gave Abraham. I'm a grain of sand. I don't deserve this. There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to add to what Jesus has done because it's out of grace that he offers me. That knowledge is supposed to blow your minds. It's supposed to rewire your brain. That I, as a person, a fallen human being, in sin, continually wrestling with it, continually dealing with my junk in life, can have a relationship with the living God. Because he's so gracious toward me, he makes me acceptable to him through Jesus. As Matt put it early in the summer, I'm just a lucky dog. I get to be a part of his story. I get to be called his child. And Paul wants us to be so grasped by this bigger story that it reflects itself in, in the behavior of a healthy believer. So he goes on and says, I want you to be filled with this knowledge so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in, in all respects. To walk in a manner how you're supposed to live your daily life now is to do it in a manner uh, that, that is worthy of God and that pleases him. How do you please God? You walk in a manner worthy of him. It's important to understand what Paul is not saying in this phrase. Okay, he is not saying go and live your life now to show yourself to be worthy of the grace of God. Okay, Jesus did not set up for us a payment plan for grace. 
okay? We didn't deserve it. It is unmerited favor. We come into it because of what he did for us. It's not that I'm supposed to now show him that I'm worthy of that he expressed grace to me, okay? That's, you know, I buy a car on credit and then I pay for it over time. That's not grace. That's not what Paul means here is that we're supposed to show God that we're worthy of his grace. It must mean something else then. Here's what I think. What, what Jesus did for us is to restore us the opportunity to be an image bearer of God. We can now reflect who God is in the world. We are simply mirrors of that image, okay? Mirrors that reflect who God is and how a human who bears his image is supposed to live in the world. Now, in the course of my daily life, there's grit and grime and dirt and smudges that get all over that mirror, and I become a distorted image that I'm trying to reflect of God. So sometimes, yes, I need to sort of clean up some things and deal with some things so that I become less of a distortion of that image reflected in me. So that when I have a bad attitude about having to do something, I'm distorting that image of who Jesus is. When I uh, demand my own way and expect others to do for me what I want them to do, I'm distorting the image of Jesus reflected in my life. That's not what's supposed to happen. This relationship is supposed to change our view of life that we become image bearers and bear the image of who we're supposed to reflect. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you remember this uh, in the movie um, Monsters, Inc.? Okay, if you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing, okay? Uh, Sully is this monster that goes around scaring kids at night, okay? Because their screams power their whole city and all that sort of thing, okay? Sully comes into a relationship uh, with a little girl. That relationship changes him. He no longer sees himself as the monster he was scaring kids, he sees himself in this relationship, but then he's in this setting later where they, it demands that he expresses himself as a monster again, okay? And he sees his own picture, and he doesn't like what he sees anymore because he knows that's no longer the reflection of who's he be, who has he become, we're image bearers of Christ, and when I'm angry or when I'm selfish and I express those things, I'm distorting that image of Christ that's supposed to be coming out of me. That's walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Chris Thurman, we can lose that image. There we go. There's another image to scare you. <laughs> Dr. Chris Thurman, who's among us and teaches our class, uh, uh, one of his sessions is about living with integrity. And I, I appreciate his definition because it represents uh, what we're to do as image bearers. He defines integrity as this, holding on to what is true about you and letting go of what is not true about you. God says a number of things are true about Ray Anderson that weren't true about him in the past. I'm a child of God. I'm a spiritual being. He loves me. I'm a part of a family. He has a plan for me. 
Okay, I get to be his image bearer. All those things are true of me. I'm supposed to hold on to those things because they accurately reflect him and the grace covenant I've entered into with him. I'm supposed to let go of sin and selfishness and those bad habits I have or those bad attitudes or selfishness that comes out of me. I'm supposed to let go of those because they distort the image of Jesus in and through me. I'm that mirror. It means something to be a child of God. It means that you're in a family. It means you are not alone. We're a child of God. We have a family. We have a father who loves us, a brother Jesus who's provided for us. We had this thing as we raised, as we were trying to be that generation of parents that did it all right. Uh, we had a thing in our family, a little Anderson thing. Uh, it was a sentence that we would say to our children. And we said it usually when they were leaving the house, when they were going to school or going to play with friends, going over for a sleepover or going to camp or, or as they got older, going on a date or going to work or those kinds of things. We would say this, remember who you are and who you belong to. Remember who you are and who you belong to. It's not that we're saying Andersons are better than others, okay? But being an Anderson should mean something. You have an image stamped on you. Reflect that image now, okay? Uh, you're a child. You're not alone. You're part of a family. You belong to God. Uh, Jesus has paid for you. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. When you go out in the world, you bear the image that's been stamped on you. In a sense, Paul is saying for these Colossian believers, remember who you are, be filled up with that knowledge, and who you belong to. You're a child of God. You're not alone. He is always with you. There's never a place you go. There's never a situation you face. There's never anything going on in your life that he's not there with you because you're in a grace covenant with him. Act like a child of God. Live like one. Bear the image of, of, that's been stamped on you by, by the faith in Jesus Christ. Live your life reflecting this view, this image of God. Walk in a manner worthy of him because you grasp the knowledge of what he's done for you. At the end of the day, no matter how the day has gone, good or bad, no matter if it didn't turn out the way you thought or it did, you belong to God. He says in his covenant, I am your God and you are my children. No matter what happens in a given day, that doesn't change. So live with that in view. Paul now in his prayer is going to, going to modify or, or, or expand on this idea of walking in a manner worthy uh, with four things. He's going to, uh, and there's four uh, key verbs, and here's what they are. Look for them. Bearing, increasing, strengthening, and giving. These are just going to expand on this idea of living in a manner worthy of God, of the Lord. Um, the first is bearing fruit in every good work, he says. Healthy plants bear fruit. A healthy apple tree produces delicious apples. 
A healthy rose bush produces blooms. A healthy vine properly connected, Jesus said, abiding in truth and him abiding in you produces fruit in season. Fruit is the result of healthiness. We need to be increasing in fruit and bearing fruit in good works, but we need to focus on healthiness. When your soul is healthy, you produce spiritual fruit. What's the fruit that Paul talked about in verse 4 and 5 earlier? The evidence in this Colossian church that they had been gripped with the, the gospel of grace, faith, hope, love. He saw it evidenced in their life, and they had a confidence that that evidence was showing that they were bearing fruit in every good work. The challenging question for us, is there evidence of spiritual health in your life? When I see junk coming out of my life, a bad attitude or being angry or self-centered or whatever, I don't try to get the world to line up better with me. I have to look inside because there's some unhealthiness that's going on there that's taken root that's spoiling the fruit that I bear. So spiritual health, bearing fruit in every good work. The second modifier of this uh, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is to increasing in the knowledge of God. Don't settle for how much you know about God right now. Keep growing in your understanding of who he is and what he has done and, and the implications of this grace covenant that you're in. Keep growing in that. Paul's not talking here and in increasing in knowledge about uh, biblical intellectualism. It's not a matter of learn more verses, okay? Yes, you need to read your Bible, you need to learn more verses, all those kinds of things. But what it's supposed to do is to better help you better understand who God is. Because I think your view of God is going to determine how you respond to him. And the more I understand that he, res he gives me grace when I don't deserve it, the more I respond to that grace. The God you know today is too small. Let him get bigger. Let's all commit ourselves to letting our God get bigger than the one we know today. Because sometimes we feel like he's not big enough to solve our problems. He's not big enough to care about this. He's not big enough to take care of this. He's not big enough to get us through the city of Austin. Oh, he's a lot bigger. He's a lot bigger. That's the God we need to get to know is continually increasing the knowledge of who he is. But that knowledge is supposed to produce love in us. In Philippians chapter 1, in Paul's prayer for the Philippian church, he says this, And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and depth of insight. That old phrase of to love me, to know me is to love me, is true. As we get to know who God is in his love and his grace and his holiness and his righteousness, don't be afraid of any part of him. 
Because if you get to know him, you'll fall more deeply in love with him. And that love relationship will change how you live because it changes your view. So our challenge question is, are you growing in the knowledge of grace, or growing in the knowledge of who God is in a way that causes you to love him more? Let's commit to do that. The third modifier Paul gives here uh, to walking in a manner worthy is to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. The word strengthen that Paul uses here, he also uses in Philippians 4, 13. Many of you know this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Be strengthened with all power. There's a corollary to this in, in, uh, in, in, in Jesus' Um, uh, sermon on the last night. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. You can do all things. Apart from me, in my power. We're to live our lives empowered by his power. Letting the Holy Spirit, who's taken up residence in us, permeate us, understand how we're supposed to live, and then in his strength, live it out. That's being strengthened with his power. The concept here that Paul's getting at is about dependence. Who are you depending upon? Are you trusting God in your life, or are you trusting your self-effort? Don't trust your self-effort, trust God. The fourth modifier of walking in a manner worthy besides um, what I bearing fruit and increasing in knowledge and strengthening with power is to joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Joyously giving thanks. Giving thanks reminds us what God has already done for us. It's one more way of saying, of us saying, I'm a lucky dog. God lets me be his child. He promises to be with me. I live out of that. God, thank you so much that you took notice of this speck of dust, this grain of sand, this sinful human being, and you extended grace to him. Fill me up with understanding that so that it changes the view of how I live life. So that I get to be alive. I get to be an image bearer. And if, even if I blow that today, the sun will come up tomorrow. And I get to do it again. I get to be that image bearer, cleaning off that mirror and reflecting his image. And the day I don't see the next sunrise, you know what happens? I get to be with Jesus. This is a great deal. I'm a lucky dog. I get to be alive. I get to experience his grace covenant. I get to walk in a manner worthy of him, reflecting his image in my life and uh, how I live. Relationships should change the view of how we live life. Understanding this relationship with God should change us. 
On December 15, 1979, almost 35 years ago now, I married Diana Friendsley of Houston, Texas. It blew my mind that she said yes. I didn't deserve her, and she certainly deserved better than me. But that day, she took me as her husband. Now, I knew where I came from when I stood there and that nice, took a shower that day and combed my hair and put on a tuxedo. I knew where I had come from. I knew the junk in my life. I knew the sin and the selfishness. I knew the multiple uh, broken relationships that I had been in and my contribution to those. Fortunately, she just knew a little bit of that. But that day, she took me for who I was, and maybe even who I could become. She knew some of the junk, but she took me anyway. I became a husband that day, and it didn't take me long to figure out this relationship was going to change how I lived life for the rest of my life. In the summer, uh, summer day in July of 1976, as a 16-year-old, I called out to God. I said, God, could I experience your grace and forgiveness that I've heard about, that you offered me? Now, unlike Diana, God knew all my junk. He knew the sins I had not even committed yet, okay? He knew the deepest thoughts of my soul. He knew the things that were bad inside. He knew all those things. And it, he didn't ask me to clean up. He didn't ask me to take a shower and put on a, a cool suit, okay? He took me for who I was. And he says, it's out of grace I take you. And he gave me a relationship with him, a relationship that once I grasped and began to study and understand and gained a fuller knowledge of what he had done for me, that view changed how I lived life. I see life now as the opportunity for me to bear his image. And so those places where I, tr I tend to distort it, I want to see change. I want to see his power expressed in me. I want to understand him more fully as the living God so that I can respond better to him. I need to understand grace that it didn't give me a, an opportunity to pay it off over time, that I'm fully accepted by him, that he's imparted righteousness to me, and I get to live that out. I am truly a lucky dog, an image bearer of God, walking in a manner worthy of him to please him in every respect. Let's pray. Father, what a great God you are. You love us with an everlasting love. The fact that you would call us to be your children is amazing. The fact that you would do it with full knowledge of who we are and our desperate need to know you through grace is incredible. Father, fill us with that knowledge that we would walk in a manner worthy of you. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.